Hey, everyone, and welcome to the February 2021 episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Mishu, and this month we have yet another special treat. We are interviewing this month's author of the Emergency Medicine Practice article on community-acquired pneumonia, and that is Dr. Matthew Delaney. But before we dive into that article, if you haven't yet seen the new article format, it is amazing. Bursting in color, lots of graphics, lots of tables, perfect workflows. I highly encourage you to go to ebmedicine.net and download this month's article and look through it as we speak because we'll be referring to a few of those tables and workflows outlined in the article. So without any further ado, here's Dr. Delaney. I'm Matthew Delaney. I am an associate professor in the associate residency program director at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in lovely Birmingham, Alabama. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and also for authoring the emergency medicine practice article this month on community acquired pneumonia in the emergency department. It is an outstanding article, and I was very happy to see you as the author. We go back a little ways, and it's exciting to be here today actually interviewing you about something you wrote. So I'm excited to have the talk. Let's talk about community acquired pneumonia. One I looked through this article for the first time, I was immediately thinking about just standard pneumonia treatment. So what has really changed and my own practice and how everything was a healthcare associated pneumonia, all my dialysis patients and nursing home patients and everyone coming from any kind of medical facility or had set foot in a clinic in the last 10 years was considered healthcare associated. But I was really happy to see even in the introduction that you kind of put that to bed almost immediately. So that is actually a nomenclature we don't use anymore. Right. So it's been over a decade since we had recommendations from the Infectious Disease Society of America and the American Thoracic Society. And we'll keep referring to, to the IDSA ATS guidelines because that's kind of sets the standard practice in terms of how do we manage these patients. And this is the update we've been waiting for, for cases of community-acquired pneumonia, but you mentioned these changes. There have been some kind of cracks in the facade over the past few years. So right out of the gate, there's great news. So HCAP, healthcare-associated pneumonia, is dead. We can put that to bed. And that was what we previously thought of. It was, you know, if you lived in a nursing home, if you're on dialysis, if you've been hospitalized within three months, we're looking for things that would make us think gosh, you're at risk of growing resistant pathogens. And so this broad category of healthcare-associated pneumonia. So what we've learned since that HCAP recommendation or kind of description came out in 05 was that it wasn't really sensitive, it wasn't really specific. We were including too broad of a group of people. And so actually back in 2016, we got two new designations. So there's hospital-acquired, or think of it as nosocomial pneumonia, and this is HAP, H-A-P. But this is only a pneumonia that occurs after a patient has been admitted to a healthcare facility for more than 48 hours. And it wasn't there when they were first admitted. So you're in the hospital, you develop a pneumonia. This is not HCAP, this is HAP. And then its second cousin, or kind of the, the bad cousin nobody wants to hang out with is VAP, or ventilator-associated pneumonia. And again, this is after you've been intubated, or more than 48 hours after you've been intubated. So when we're looking at a patient in the emergency department, by the letter of the law, we're not going to be able to to diagnose them as either HAP 
or VAP. That's more for our inpatient colleagues. But yeah, HCAP is dead, and these new guidelines very firmly say we need to move away from that designation. I thought it was justifying, actually, to see that the recommendation for getting rid of healthcare-associated pneumonia was overuse of antibiotics. We were just shotgunning everybody with these broad-spectrum, heavy-duty antibiotics just because they happened to be a dialysis patient, even though that was the only medical facility they had stepped in for the last year. Well, Sam, I mean, you remember when this first came out, I remember pulling out a calendar and trying to count, well, you were hospitalized in June and now it's August. So is that, you know, are you, is it been sufficient time to not have HCAP? So yeah, it didn't make sense when we were told to do it at first. Now we're kind of validated that we're not as crazy as we thought we were. We can actually use our brains a little bit more precisely. Fantastic. So hospital associated, no longer healthcare associated. And now in the midst of the global pandemic, I also found it very helpful that you spent some time talking about COVID-19 pneumonia. You know, in our previous practices, pre-pandemic, viral pneumonia was sort of one of those things we just shrugged our shoulders at and then treated the patient with antibiotics <laughs> uh, in, in adults. It was something I really didn't give much consideration to, but now it's a whole different world. It's a mess, man. We actually had written this manuscript before COVID and we're finalizing it. And then we had to just say, oh my gosh, the world of um, infectious pathogens has changed. You know, I don't, day to day, I don't know exactly what to do in terms of how do I think about community acquired pneumonia while COVID is ravaging through the world. We've got some conflicting evidence and uh, this is all kind of early retrospective data, you know, co-infection rates. If a patient has COVID-19, you know, there are studies that say, well, 27% of those patients had signs of mycoplasma antibodies when tested, 34% had chlamydial pneumonias. So maybe one in three patients could have a bacterial co-infection. What is clear is that I'm not the only one that's confused. <laughs> so there was a study that looked at New York and they said, you know, in patients with COVID-19, only 2% of those patients had a co-infection from a bacterial pathogen but 70% of them got at least one dose of antibiotics. And I did this the other day at work. I look, the patient can't smell, they got a fever. I think this is definitely COVID and they've got this low bar infiltrate on their chest X-ray. So, you know, I gave them a dose of antibiotics because I'm not sure how I'm supposed to pick out you're just COVID or you're COVID plus a bacterial pneumonia. Exactly. And interestingly, when we talk about bacterial pneumonia, people always think, oh, okay, most of what we see is strep. And historically, I've been taught that, well, you know, something like 75 to 90% of what we see is strep pneumonia. And I found it fascinating that that number has actually changed as well uh, in in the last decade or so, thanks to the, to the new effects, right? That's exactly it. So it, it's a little bit confusing when I first read this. So we think strep, Strep is still the most commonly isolated pathogen. Yet overall, if we take everybody who's getting admitted with pneumonia, the percentage of patients who have strep pneumonia are down now to about 10 to 15%. So it's still a major player on the inpatient side. But I think that Pneumovax vaccine really has cut the, the overall numbers down. And so I, we can see that clearly in areas where folks aren't vaccinated, the strep rates are higher. So still a player, but hopefully becoming less and less of an issue for folks. And it, amongst all of those patients with pneumonia, this was even pre-COVID, 20% were presumed to be viral or thought to be viral, which is even still larger than I really ever thought about before COVID. That was also surprising. 
Yeah, when we scratch our head in the ED and say, I don't know what's causing it, inpatient, they scratch their head and then ultimately say, yeah, one out of five times we'll call it viral and just go about our business. And then as we translate this into actually the patient sitting in front of us, the conditions that we think predispose people to pneumonia, these are all still you know, old with multiple medical problems and chronic lung disease? It's, it's really interesting and it's much simpler than I thought. So if, if we think about how does a patient get a pneumonia, it's typically pathogens that live or kind of set up shop in our upper respiratory tract. And then we aspirate them. And if you can clear them, so if you don't have COPD or bronchiectasis or you're young and healthy, you kind of cough that up. It doesn't set up shop in the lower respiratory tract, get an inflammatory action, become a pneumonia. And so, yes, the same risk factors, if you have trouble clearing a cough, old age is a risk factor for everything, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be more likely that they get something compared to a healthy 22-year-old, you know, immunocompromised patients. But the big things that we've thought of as risk factors still are, are things that would increase the chance a patient would have a community-acquired pneumonia. And there was a little mention now in the article, this is kind of, I guess, preliminary, maybe there isn't as much evidence for this, but there are some medications like proton pump inhibitors and H2 blockers that might be somehow associated with an increased risk of pneumonia. It's wacky. So there's definitely an association or there's definitely reports of a strong association. And the theory be is that, well, if you cut down on the gastric pH, maybe folks will kind of belt stuff up and aspirate that. We don't have any randomized controlled trials. So I'm not changing clinical practice. I'm not going to pull somebody off of a proton pump inhibitor, but it is, you know, it theoretically makes sense. And I, with these associations that are getting reported, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future we get more kind of causative data linking these things. It is interesting, and and it's interesting that if you are aspirating things from your oropharynx down into your lung and you have a history of bad reflux, you might actually be on one of these medications regularly. So it may just be the association that this is somebody who refluxes frequently and therefore is more predisposed to you know micro-aspiration of bacteria from their oropharynx into their lungs. That may be the only association and not actually the medication itself. Right. It's easy to blame the medicine, but it might be the person. And then, so that's all historical and that's great. So the bacterial pathology is a little bit different than we thought. Now there's a definitely a larger portion of viral pneumonia patients coming through our ED. But when we get down to just, you know, physical exam and trying to determine the patient in front of us does or does not have pneumonia, the history and the physical is still helpful, maybe? Nah, I looked into this and I really want to call my medical school and get some partial refund on my <laughs> tuition. I mean, it's all <laughs> the stuff. I remember as a student being told that I did uh, egophony wrong and I felt embarrassed. But when, when you look at the evidence, you know, we talk about likelihood ratios with a good likelihood ratio being greater than 10 and a good negative likelihood ratio being less than 0.1. So can I look at you and rule this in? Same, if you have egophony, you get a likelihood ratio of 8.6. That really doesn't move the needle sufficiently. So mm. none of the exam findings, and I guess the more precise question is, if you have these findings, can I say it's a bacterial rather than viral? And the answer conclusively seems to be no. We had to learn it in med school. We were tested on it, but that doesn't really give us actionable information when we got a patient at the bedside. Gotcha. And even things, the historical features, fever, 
productive cough, dry cough, perial and sputum, all these kinds of things are still not sensitive enough really to be of much true use in trying to differentiate those two things. No, I mean, they make me think you've got something infectious going on in your lungs, but they don't tell me that's a bacteria versus that's a virus. Okay, so then history, we're still going to ask the questions. We're still going to pull from them risk factors, medications they're taking, chronic medical problems, things that might predispose them to pneumonia. Examination, we're still going to listen because we may pick up on something else. They might have abnormal lung sounds, all those kinds of things. But in the absence of any of those unusual findings, they might still have pneumonia. So we just go to the gold standard. I'm going to get a chest x-ray. But actually, even the chest x-ray is not as good as I thought it was. It seems like nothing is as good as we thought it was or we're told that it was. So chest x-ray is specific for pneumonia with specificities in the mid to high 90s. It's really not sensitive. You get a range of sensitivities from 46% up to kind of 77, 78%. You know, I, I get chest x-rays. I think the value is for me more looking at other things that could be going on. Do they have a you know enlarged pericardial shadow? You know, do I think they have some pericardial effusion? You know, do I see pulmonary edema? Do I see a pneumothorax? So, you know, I, it's not a no yield test. But if my question is, do you have an ammonia? Yes, no, it's not as helpful of a test as we may have thought. Mm, so disappointing. <laughs> but Maybe just like we did at the beginning of pandemic, before we had tests for COVID-19, we just stick everybody in the donut of truth. Everyone gets a CT. I'm going to radiate your chest, and that becomes the gold standard, right? For for chest X-ray, the the comparison study is is CT. That's it. So that you've got to compare it to the gold standard, and CT gets put out there as the gold standard. You know, if your goal is to diagnose everyone accurately, CT is going to help do that much more so than a chest x-ray would. Obviously, I don't think any of us should be CTing anybody who could potentially have a community-acquired pneumonia. So we have to balance that of, do we need more information or do we have enough pieces of the puzzle from the history, from the exam that, that we could say, I'm confident, even with an equivocal chest x-ray that we're dealing with a pneumonia here. Gotcha. All right. So I don't need to radiate everyone. I get the chest x-ray. Maybe there are some subtle findings there of pneumonia, or maybe there's a, a low bar pneumonia. And then we turn to labs. So uh, maybe the physical exam and the history is not as reliable. Maybe the chest x-ray is not as reliable, but gosh darn it, that white blood cell count, that's going to get me there, right? A hundred percent of the time. Yeah, that was also part of my letter to my medical school asking for the refund was that you told me this is an infection number. It turns out, it will come as no surprise to any of us, that the white <laughs> blood cell count does not help us here. But there is the new the new Cadillac of labs, the procalcitonin, which now was initially touted as the laboratory method to differentiate this viral from bacterial process. And even today, I still get into these kind of tete-a-tete arguments with my hospitalist about whether or not I should be obtaining procalcitonins in the emergency department. What exactly is the value of this blood test? It all depends on who you ask and what day of the week you ask them. So the IDSA ATS recommendations, they give a strong recommendation on what they say is a moderate quality of evidence that if a patient has clinical and radiographic findings of community-acquired pneumonia, that they should start empiric antibiotics no matter what the initial procalcitonin shows. So this idea that we can use this test to say, 
yep, this is a bacterial pathogen versus a viral pathogen. The recommendations, the guidelines would say, no, 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 ignore it initially. We dug around for this paper to look to see, hey, you know, were they really right on track? And the evidence that we have is, is conflicting. So if you want to look at papers that are pro procalcitonin use, largely those are inpatients and a lot of ICU studies that say, hey, if we look at procalcitonins over time, can we de-escalate antibiotic therapy? There are some ED studies that show, hey, can we use procalcitonin to help guide our therapy? And what they found is, yeah, a couple of studies said, if we use procalcitonin, a procalcitonin strategy, that there are no adverse patient outcomes. So if we're less likely to use antibiotics based on procalcitonin. Other studies have shown that if you randomize patients to get procalcitonin versus not, that the outcomes are, are not really that different. So for me on my next shift, I don't have a problem if folks want to get a procalcitonin. I know a lot of folks that are much smarter than me who are using that to, to base their decision to start antibiotics or not. But from an evidentiary standpoint, we've got guidelines saying we shouldn't use it in the ED visit to not give antibiotics. And I think the studies out there really, to me, seem to suggest that this isn't quite ready for prime time. But I think that in the future, everything seems to be moving towards this probably will play some role. And the rest of the kind of inflammatory markers that we uh, have used in the past, things like sedimentation rates or CRPs, all of those kind of fall into the same bucket of, well, they might be helpful in the extremes or perhaps helpful to trend, but still not diagnostically sufficient to differentiate bacterial versus viral. Is that right? That's exactly it. I'm not ordering those routinely on any patient I see with a respiratory infection. Now, we have access to other things, uh, blood cultures, which we have historically used for pneumonia. Uh, and we are accustomed to getting these for people who have sepsis or septic shock. But specifically, if I'm looking at a patient with pneumonia who isn't in septic shock, is there really any utility? Do we actually get good information from blood cultures? It's Again, it's not no yield. It seems to be very, very low yield. So if you look, there's a number needed to treat in terms of you have pneumonia, we're going to get a blood culture. And that blood culture is going to give us information that will lead us to change what we're doing with antibiotics. The number needed to treat is, is 250. That's a very high number. So I would say Sure, you can describe a scenario where you need a blood culture, but in reality, patients who come in, patients who come in do not need routine blood cultures for community-acquired pneumonia. And sputum cultures. Now, this seems to be something I I don't think I've ever ordered a sputum culture in the emergency department, but there there is some utility to these for people who are on ventilators. Uh, is there any utility for the person who's not intubated? This is where the guidelines at first pass seemed very frustrating. So they actually recommend uh, getting sputum cultures on a broader array of patients. And I'm with you, I don't get these in the ED on patients ever. Um, and the idea that on a patient who's not intubated that I would get a sputum culture seemed really wacky. So the IDSA is pushing us towards if a patient's been hospitalized and given IV antibiotics during the previous 90 days, that we should try to get a sputum culture. That seemed crazy, but what they seem to be getting at is that they're taking those old HCAP, the Healthcare Associated Pneumonia Risk Factors, and saying, we still think that these pose some risk. And so our reaction to that risk should be that we culture more broadly with the goal of de-escalating therapy. 
So if you go by the letter of the law from the guidelines, we're being asked to get sputum cultures in patients that we never would have done before, but they say, no, 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 this is because we want to get, give them less antibiotics, de-escalate therapy. So I think we have to balance that with the reality that I just don't do this for most of my patients, but that is out there in the guidelines that they're saying, you know, let's be good stewards of antibiotics and get more cultures. Me, I, I have not shifted my practice that way. And then lastly, as far as testing goes, there are these urine antigens that honestly I didn't even realize existed. There are antigens you can test for in urine for Legionella and pneumonia. Is that right? That's right. Uh, yeah, this, this is news to me as well. So the guidelines are saying if you have a case of severe community-acquired pneumonia that you could check this pneumococcal antigen. I, I don't know how it's going to change practice. The, the evidence behind this recommendation seems fairly weak, but sure, if you're in an ICU and you want to check this, have at it. Legionella, this is one of the ones we think about it, you know, it's associated with, with specific outbreaks. And so if you've got eight patients with Legionella and a, a ninth patient comes in, sure, maybe a Legionella antigen test in the urine could help you, but you should have other clues here. We shouldn't be doing this just in case you're the first patient showing up with Legionella. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's good. So there are some some things we may be ordering from the ED for our inpatient colleagues to to trend, and perhaps we could use sputum cultures for people who have had recent access to healthcare or exposure uh, for de-escalation of antibiotics, but the rest of the tests are really not yet proven to be of any kind of diagnostic value yet. Hopefully, in the future, there'll be some evidence that's actually going to be pertinent to the emergency department. But now I'm looking at my patient and trying to differentiate, okay, can this person with pneumonia now go home or do they need to come in inpatient or do they need to go to the ICU? And you spent a good deal of time here in the article talking about two specific risk calculators, CURB-65 and PSI. And between the two of those, maybe we can start touching on the CURB-65 first and just highlight the difference. And maybe you can tell me which one you prefer if you have one. Right. So one of the very, very big pushes in these recent guidelines from the IDSC was that we need to stop and think before we reflexively admit or discharge a patient. And so they say upfront, the most important thing is to risk stratify all of our patients. The two systems that they hype, and again, they do actually conditionally recommend PSI or pneumonia severity index over the CURB-65 score. But they actually say, don't get hung up in, in our conditional recommendation, just use some type of risk stratification system. And so CURB-65, you're really looking at just clinical criteria and you get points, are you confused? Is your BUN elevated? Are you tachypnic? Are you hypotensive? You get points for age greater than or equal to 65 and then confusion. So this is all stuff that other than age, we look at you at the bedside and try to estimate, you know, are you someone who would have based on predicted mortality, could you go outpatient? There's a score of two, which gets you this, you could go either way. And this is a good spot for shared medical decision-making, greater than three, you got 22% mortality. Those are recommended for admission. Now they recommend this mostly to look at, should you be admitted or discharged? Not should you be admitted and go to the ICU? They give us some other tools for that. But CURB 65 to me is easy because it's just those set of criteria. When you look at the pneumonia severity index, I think it's a more powerful tool. And the way that it works, it's a two-step process. So step one is you look at the patient and say, do you have any features 
that would make you high risk. So age greater than 50, history of cancer, CHF, stroke, liver disease, kidney disease, and then some physiologic criteria, tachycardia, tachypnea, hypotension, are you hypo or hyperthermic? And, and basically if you say none of that stuff is present, then you're a, identifying a low risk patient. So it's a two-step process. And that two-step at first felt kind of clunky, but actually I like that. I look at those things, including historical elements, which the curve 65 does not include. And so I can right out of the gate say, yeah, you're low risk. Now, if you're high risk, then you go to the step two. And I, I go to a, an online calculator for this, but you include a lot of things, including coexisting illnesses, things you found on labs, and then you generate a score that gets you the same kind of risk stratification of low, moderate, or high. So outpatient, OBS potentially, or just inpatient admission. And does the pneumonia severity index help me predict ICU versus floor, or is there a separate then calculator that I use for that step? The authors of the guidelines and the creators of the pneumonia severity index don't necessarily say this is the tool to use to identify a patient who should be in the ICU. But it really, its strength seems to be you can go home from the emergency department versus we would need to admit you. Once you decide you need to admit them, then we need to pause again and say, do you actually need an ICU level of care? And that's where you have to reach for other tools and scoring systems. Okay, so I like both of these. I, admittedly, the CURB 65 is shorter, but I see the value of the two-step pneumonia severity index, and both of them are available in our handy-dandy MD Calc app, and also those links are in the article. That's helpful. So now I've decided, based on risk factors and a couple of labs, that this patient needs to be admitted and I'm going to differentiate who is going to the ICU versus who's going to go to the floor. What do the guidelines say about what tool I should use in this scenario? They give us two tools, and we've got these in, in the tables in, in the article. So there's SMART-COP, and this is a way to say, yep, you need an ICU level of care. We should consider it strongly uh, versus you can go to the floor and be fine. But the the authors of the guidelines hype up maybe kind of a self fulfilling prophecy, they hype up their own criteria, the major and minor criteria for ICU admission. So this is all stuff that I would say really falls in the category of common sense. So if you have one major criteria, so if you require vasosuppressor support or you require mechanical ventilation, they say just one of those is enough to get you in the ICU. I think all of us would agree with that. Yeah. Or if you have three or more minor criteria, so confusion, respiratory rate greater than or equal to 30, multi-liberal pneumonia, hypotension, elevated BUN, hypoxemia, low platelets, hypothermia, or leukopenia, you know, a constellation of those, you get three of those, that's a patient where we really should stop and say, should you go to the ICU? There's some debate about, hey, did, did these major and minor criteria, do they outperform this smart cop scoring system? And despite the recommendations for the major and minor criteria, the guideline authors do fall back and say, hey, the important thing is, again, risk stratify, should you go home or stay in the hospital, then pause and risk stratify, should you go to the floor or the ICU? And they cite some studies that say, if, if we make that decision incorrectly out of the ED, if we put a patient who has you know risk factors that would suggest they need the ICU, if we put them on the floor, they have increase in mortality, increase in the rate of adverse events. So that to me has been a bit of a practice change is once I decide to admit you, I force myself to stop and think, do I really think you're safe on the floor or do you need the ICU? So 
working in the emergency department and trying to simplify our own processes, if we're using something other than our own gestalt to try and determine what it, where this person is supposed to go, according to these guidelines, we use CURB-65 or the pneumonia severity index to determine who can go home. And then step two, use either the IDSA major minor criteria or the smart cop scoring system to determine who goes to the ICU. So either way, I'm making two calculations here. But I did notice that the CURB-65 scoring system does have a, a small little footnote that says, if you score four or five there, you should consider putting that patient in the ICU. Um, but, but you mentioned that the IDSA actually doesn't necessarily recommend that scoring system to make that determination because in comparison to what they're using, there's actually very few elements in the CURB-65 about patient history and the remainder of their labs and their clinical condition. Uh, and is that the reason why they just don't think it's sensitive enough? Or did they even talk about that in the guidelines? They make a big mess out of how they chose the scoring system they chose. And when you look at any of these, these scores, at some point, if you get enough points, common sense would tell us that, yes, you probably should go to a higher level of care. And so the scoring systems that they end up settling on that you just talked about seem to have the highest level of evidence, but it's not conclusive evidence. And so if you're really comfortable using another scoring system we haven't talked about, they actually give you the out that as long as you're thinking about home versus hospitalization and then ICU versus floor, that that's the most important thing that we're thinking about those two brain points rather than getting totally tied up in the weeds of when studied, which what outcome changed based on the score you were using. It is interesting, you know, that the two things that I find the most helpful about scoring systems are first, when I'm having the conversation with the patient who insists they want to go home, because then I can quantify, you know, here's a number, your mortality risk if you go home. I find that to be very helpful because I, just me standing there saying, you know, you're at risk for dying if you go home. It's very different than I say, hey, you have a one in 10 chance. You got a 10% mortality if you decide you're going to go home. I think that sometimes has a much larger impact on someone than just, well, yeah, I think you're at high risk. I, I agree. Patients seem to like numbers. And the flip side of that, Sam, is that when these scoring systems have been studied, what we found is that it actually lets us identify a larger cohort of patients who are low risk. So you may come in, you may have some risk factors, and I may say, gosh, my gestalt is that because you have breast cancer and because you have chronic kidney disease, that you, you have to come in, you have pneumonia, you're going to die if we send you home. And we have strong evidence that says, you know, if we use the PSI, the pneumonia severity index, we're going to substantially increase the number of patients that we say, hey, you're actually lower risk than we thought and we can get you home. And I force myself to do this, you know, when I see somebody from a nursing home, a lot of these patients don't score high. And previously I would have said, gosh, you're going to the hospital. And now I have some numbers and some evidence to say, no, actually our, our recommendations would be that you are safer off not being hospitalized. And then the second group of patients that I found scoring systems helpful for are those where my clinical gestalt says this is a sick patient and would really benefit from going to a higher level of monitoring care than just a floor bed, but I don't have a way 
to describe over the phone with my admitting team the gestalt that is going through my brain and telling me, you know, this person probably shouldn't be on the floor. So it's helpful to have a tool like this to say, oh, you know, I went through the IDSA criteria and they have three major or sorry, three minor criteria and are at increased risk and really should be in an ICU setting. Of course, in the midst of a pandemic, ICU beds are sort of, uh, uh, you know, whether or not you have space and, and, and in the midst of COVID, that's a whole nother debate. But if you actually have the space and the ability to do so, uh, this kind of highlights the importance of placing those patients in that setting versus someone else who may also need the bed. It just kind of gives you more evidence that, oh, yes, this person should be in that higher level of care. And here's an objective way to calculate it. That's very helpful. Yeah, and we, we jokingly say at my hospital that the only way to get in the ICU is to be intubated. And this gives me an objective way to say, while that's largely true, I now have evidence that these patients are going to do better if we put them in an ICU. So it has taken some of the the arguing out of the admission process and, and let us all have a common set of, of rules that we're playing by. That's fantastic. Okay, so we've decided now this patient is going to be admitted and we're looking for antibiotic regimens. And there are even some changes here that are relevant to our practice for those that we're sending home or admitting or admitting to the ICU. So we start with patients who we know are being admitted but not going to the ICU. So kind of the, the non-severe community acquired pneumonia category that the it's used in the article. And this is not your typical, you know, give them all Vank and Zosin and put them in the hospital. This is actually quite tailored depending on the type of patient I'm looking at. That's right. So we are, again, being pushed by everyone to, to be more judicious with our use of antibiotics. So for the, you're right, Vank and Zosin are not necessarily what we need for patients with non-severe community-acquired pneumonia. And the recommendations here are there are two treatment regimens that both get a strong recommendation. They say you can do either combination therapy with a beta-lactam. So this is ampsablactam or cefotaxime or ceftriaxone is one we commonly use for, and azithromycin or doxycycline. So basically they're saying the beta-lactam is going to take care of the strep pneumonia we would worry about. And then that combination therapy, whether it's a macrolide or doxycycline, is, is targeted for the atypical pathogens. Or they say, if you don't want to do combination, you can do monotherapy with a respiratory fluoroquinolone. But they give us this warning that th about the side effects of respiratory fluoroquinolones, which I think we're all hearing and talking about more and more. And so they actually say, look, save cases where you're using monotherapy for the, the patients who really can't take the other medications. But so combination therapy seems to be the, the go-to for patients who have community-acquired pneumonia, non-severe, who are admitting to the hospital. And then this other category of patients with, this is still non-severe community-acquired pneumonia, but they have a history of, say, pseudomonas, uh, then we're changing that regimen slightly. There's a, there's a recommendation to use piperacillin and tazobactam instead, or cefepime, or ceftazidime, or some of those larger, broader spectrum, but specifically effective against pseudomonas drugs. And that would be something I would pull from a history of, say, prior sputum cultures or prior blood cultures or some other piece of information from a prior hospitalization, right? Right. So it's not risk factors for pseudomonas or MRSA. It is you've previously grown these out. So if you have risk factors, they say, hey, think about the risk factor. 
get cultures in these patients, but don't empirically treat for MRSA and pseudomonas. But yes, if you previously have grown out those two resistant pathogens, then you're back looking at what do we treat MRSA with? It's vancomycin, then the options you described for pseudomonas. Gotcha. So is it safe to say then if they're severely ill with community-acquired pneumonia and they're going somewhere like an ICU and we don't have culture-proven pseudomonas, but they have some of those traditional risk factors that in that scenario, we're defaulting to the, the broad spectrum like the vancomycin uh, plus piperacillin tazobactam, things that will cover both of those organisms uh, in that population that's going to the ICU. Yeah. If they're sick and they're going to the ICU and you think they have those risk factors, broad coverage is the way to go. And then uh, for the majority of our patients, hopefully, who are not going to be admitted and are going to go home, has the outpatient recommendation changed at all? Are we still doing fluoroquinolones for everyone, or is there now a more tailored approach? There are a lot of changes here. So one of the things that is, I think, going to be a big practice change for a lot of us is that azithromycin, the idea that you give a Z-pack, and that's the monotherapy for community-acquired pneumonia, we're being told not to do that anymore. And the concern here is that there's there are increasing rates of resistance to strep pneumo in terms of azithromycin's efficacy. So they, they shift us here and they say, if you have a patient with community-acquired pneumonia that you're going to send home, you've got a couple of options. They say you can do amoxicillin one gram three times a day or doxycycline 100 milligrams two times a day. Or you can do a macrolide only in areas where the pneumococcal resistance to macrolides is less than 25%, which is really nowhere in the US, really very few parts of the world still. So for the healthy patient, no real risk factors, no real comorbidities, we're being told that we can do the amox or doxycycline. Although there's, there's some concern out there about what level of evidence are these recommendations actually based on? Mm. It is interesting that doxycycline was insufficient as monotherapy for the patient being admitted. There was still use of a specific antibiotic for strep pneumonia and then plus a macrolide or doxy. But in the outpatient setting, doxycycline monotherapy is being recommended. That's Interesting. It's kind of like doxycycline for everyone for all purposes, unless they're being admitted, in which case we're doing kind of this two-step process. Yeah. How they got to those recommendations is murky. A lot of this, actually most of their evidence comes from inpatient studies that they're now kind of backwards extrapolating to say, well, if it worked for inpatients, it must work for outpatients as well. The, the concern with some of these recommendations would be if you look at what do these agents actually kill, so amoxicillin will reliably kill strep pneumo, but will not reliably kill atypical pathogens. So if we're doing amoxicillin as monotherapy, what we're saying is we're going to not treat atypicals. And the IDSA says, well, yeah, well, we've done that. We've looked at that on the inpatient side, and there's no increase in adverse events. So if it was safe there, it must be safe as an outpatient. And I actually talked to one of the folks who was involved with writing these guidelines, and they said, yeah, look, with amox, you're not going to treat atypical pathogens but nobody on the outpatient side is dying from them. So they can always come back to you. I, I didn't find that to be reassuring. Um, and <laughs> That's an interesting approach. <laughs> it's, it's a bold uh, move. Doxycycline theoretically would take care of strep pneumo 
and atypicals, but has been largely unproven to do those two things. But they say, we're giving it a recommendation based on its its theoretical mechanism of action. That's also a very weird thing to see in a guideline. And so what a lot of us are doing is I'm not necessarily going with their monotherapy recommendations for healthy patients. So I will typically give a patient amoxicillin to, to take care of the strep pneumo. And then I'll add on a macrolide in a lot of patients because the macrolides still work for atypicals. So I'm doing a mox plus a macrolide, or if I'm feeling wild, I'll do doxycycline, but I'm just not sold based on the level of evidence we have that we should be doing monotherapy for the vast majority of our patients, despite the recommendation saying we can do that. Well, at least it's something I can put in my back pocket for those who are multi-drug allergic and able to take doxycycline, at least there's a guideline that says, hey, we could use this as monotherapy and start there. Interestingly, the duration of coverage has also changed as a recommendation. Not everybody gets 10 days. Now, previously, I'd, we had used a shoulder duration with levofloxacin specifically. That one came out with a five-day regimen, or azithromycin has the shorter regimen that has been studied. But now the recommendation is for everyone to start with five days. Is that right? So five days is the minimum. And they point to some studies that say, hey, shorter is better. And there are actually some questions about, do you even need five days? They, they go conservative on the recommendations here and say, even if you're getting better clinically, a minimum of five days is what you need. And then they just leave it blank. Leave it, so it can be dealer's choice. Give people five days of antibiotic therapy, but there's no urging to go past that, especially if a patient's improving. So five is where we're going to stop for now for patients who are better. Okay. I like that actually. Less pills to take and less days to take it. That's helpful. There is a section, a fantastic section in the article about special populations, and we don't have to get into it here, but if you're listening, I definitely want you to go look at page 13. This is the differentiation in pediatric patients uh, and how the bacteriology of their pneumonia and the presence of viral pneumonia in that population affects some of what we do uh, and the risk of multidrug resistant organisms. It's, it's a fantastic read. Uh, and then you touched a little bit on corticosteroids and treatment of influenza on page 14, which again, I highly encourage everyone who's listening to go and read but I just want to walk through in our last few minutes the pathway that's in the article, which is fantastic. So this is kind of summing it all up as we see the patient with pneumonia who has a community-acquired pneumonia, and we have taken our history and physical, we've done some labs, then we've reached that point of, are you going to go home or do you need to be admitted? So step one is we pull out our handy dandy MD calc and we're looking through a calculator using the PSI or the CURB 65 and differentiating, do you need to be in the hospital or do you need to be out of the hospital? And if you're going home, then we've got the list of antibiotics we talked about already, the outpatient treatment. And if you're being admitted, then we have a secondary calculation. So you're sick enough to need to be in the hospital. We now have to differentiate, are you going to the floor or are you going to the ICU? And depending on that secondary calculation, it can also help guide antibiotic specifics. We've got the dual antibiotic therapy 
with a penicillin agent or a cephalosporin plus a macrolide or doxycycline. And then we've got the ICU higher standard for the sicker patient. And that's the workflow for the community-acquired pneumonia pathway. Did I get that right? You did. And putting the pathway together, it looks daunting because there are several branch points when it comes to antibiotic therapy, but you nailed it. The simple thing, here you are, do you need to be admitted or can you go home? If we're sending you home, we've got one set of antibiotics recommended for patients with no comorbidities. If you have comorbidities, there's some changes in, we mentioned the article about the recommendations there. Then on the inpatient side of things, do you need an ICU? Can you go to the floor? Think about risk factors, use your risk factors to help guide antibiotic choice. So it's, it's, it's a busy diagram that describes what actually is kind of an intuitive process. Well, in the last few minutes that we have, is there anything else you want to mention that we didn't touch on or anything else you thought you want to highlight for the listeners? I think the one thing that was surprising to me was how easy these guidelines from the IDSA were to read. I'm not paid by them. I'm not trying to hype them up anymore, but they actually did a very good job of answering clinically relevant questions. It's not that long of a paper. So if, if you read our paper and say, hey, I want to know more, I would strongly recommend those guidelines. They're very user-friendly and they get into some detail that we just weren't able to include in our manuscript. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for taking the time to write this article for emergency medicine practice and to help us develop this workflow. There really have been some significant changes in the treatment of community-acquired pneumonia in the ED. And these are relatively easy to incorporate in our practice. I mean, a couple of scoring systems, some changes to antibiotics, but I could see this really making a big difference. And thank you also for taking the time to talk to us on the podcast. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Don't forget to go to ebmedicine.net and take your CME quiz and claim your credit for this article on community-acquired pneumonia. And while you're there, check out the abundant resources on a variety of emergency medicine topics for both adults and pediatrics. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Eshoo. Be safe. <laughs>